regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hello everyone, uh, welcome to a new episode of Datacast and today I have uh, the pleasure to speak with uh, Patricia Ten. Uh, Patricia is a, a computer science PhD candidate at the University of Toronto and a postgrad affiliate at the Vector Institute doing research on privacy preserving NLP with a focus on applied cryptography. Her research interests also include computational methods for lost language decipherment. She is the co-founder and CEO of Private AI, a Toronto and Berlin-based startup, creating a suite of privacy tools that make it easy to comply with data protection regulations, mitigate cybersecurity threats, and maintain customer trust. Uh, Patricia is a recipient of the NSERC Postgres Scholarship, RBC Grad Fellowship, the Beatrice J.C. Ghostly Graduate Scholarship in Computer Science, and the Ontario Graduate Scholarship. She has over eight years of research and software development experience, including at the McKeel Language Development Lab, the University of Toronto's Computational Linguistic Lab, uh, the, also at Toronto Department of Linguistics, uh, and the Public Health Agency of Canada. So Patricia, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. So let's start our conversation talking about your job bringing. So I saw that you, uh, you have lived in Spain and the US and also spent a good amount of time in, uh, in Brazil and Bolivia. And then you also fluent in English, French, Portuguese and Spanish and can, uh, you know, also you can get, get along pretty well in Italian. So, you know, I'm just curious, what about uh, language that captures your interest and how does living in, uh, you know, various cultures shape your outlook? So James, uh, I'm actually quite lucky in that I grew up in a very multilingual city and a multilingual family. So all those languages that I learned were, French was the hardest one to learn because that took the most uh, work to get the grammar and spelling just right. But I was lucky enough to just be surrounded by them. So learned them while growing up. And when you have that chance uh, to not only learn all of these languages when you're so young and also travel when you're young, you get a very interesting perspective of all of these various cultures and appreciation for what language can bring when you travel. You get much more connected with the people in the locations that you're traveling to when you speak their language. And that inspired me to study Italian and uh, also currently studying German as a result. And my understanding is that you also have volunteer for, you know, different types of organization such as Opportunity International Canada and International Network of Street Papers as a translator in which you translate documents and articles across these different types of language that you're familiar with. So how do you, you know, enjoy being um, a translator? 
So unfortunately, I haven't had time to do that in a while, but uh, it was great fun, uh, partially to keep up with the language skills, but also it was really interesting to learn about what these different organizations were doing. So I got a chance to learn about microfinance, got a chance to learn about what uh, the International Network of Street Papers is doing to get people out of poverty, and also got a really great chance to tune my language skills as I was doing it uh, and learn about all sorts of different topics that authors were writing about. Uh, so I definitely recommend it if uh, anybody's looking for an op a volunteer opportunity. INSP is still always looking for volunteer translators. During your college year, you, you study you know, a variety of subjects from liberal arts to English literature to computer science and, and, and logistics at, at you know, a different a variety of, I think, colleges. So how was your uh, undergrad experience um, overall? Uh, the liberal arts was part of a CGEP degree. So CGEP is a special thing in Quebec where you do one less year of high school, one less year of university. And you'd have this uh, pre-university program in the middle. You could either choose to do a two-year pre-university program or a three-year uh, technical program where you could train for nursing or dentist assistant and so on. Uh, so you get these fantastic PhDs and people who have masters teaching you who are just focused on teaching and not so much on research and are really there to hone uh, your skills, your understanding of the world uh, and your critical thinking skills. Uh, so I think that that liberal arts program at John Abbott College really uh, helped me not only get a better understanding of uh, history, how the world works, uh, but also hone writing skills, critical thinking skills, and really appreciate all of the topics that they taught about from a very deep level. And to that, uh, I ended up going to English literature at, uh, at Concordia University, uh, thinking that was my great love, which I still very much love. But after doing about a year of that, I felt like there were different things that I wanted to be learning uh, that couldn't be found in that program. So I tried international relations, I tried uh, going into philosophy, but none of those captured the essence of what I was really after, which was understanding how the world works. I went to linguistics, I really, really uh, appreciated how uh, practical and how the pattern matching of, of uh, the different that you needed to do in other different classes. Uh, but you can't really do much with the linguistics degree. So I started looking at what can I combine this with? Most people want to combine it with, with psychology uh, in order to become speech pathologists. That wasn't for me. So I saw uh, this thing that was called computational linguistics. And I thought that sounded super cool. So I called my brother up and I told him, hey, can you try to get me to like programming again? And he said, uh, what is it about programming that you think you wouldn't like? And I said, I think I wouldn't like thinking of things to program. So he uh, walked me through an example of coming up with an idea to, of something to program. And I absolutely loved it from that moment. So uh, I was completely wrong about that. Took my first programming class at McGill University and ended up loving it more than linguistics. So turned that into my major and ended up going into computational linguistics for a master's degree at University of Toronto. Yeah, thanks a lot for sharing that anecdote. And, um, you know, how did you uh, kind of get into programming and, and studying computer science? And, um, you know, that, uh, I believe that at McGill, you, you also work at the uh, Language Development Lab as a research assistant. And, and the lab, you know, study how children learn different types of words and sentences. So mm -hmm. can you share a bit about the problem that you work on in the lab? 
Uh, sure. It was, so I was an undergraduate research assistant, so I really didn't get to do too much of the theoretical side of, of uh, the research there. It was more a lot of labeling uh, children pointing at things. <laughs> Uh, but essentially, it, the whole research around in that lab was about how children uh, learn grammar, learn uh, vocabulary, and how they interact with the world. Yeah, I mean, like even you know some of the work that you've done probably also very important because we all know that um, data labeling is, is a big uh, component of, of any. You know, That's kind of you to say, James. <laughs> data problems. <laughs> But um, yeah, so, so you mentioned you, you know, after McGill, you, you then pursue a, a graduate degree at the University of Toronto. So you, you were at Toronto from 2013 to 2019, initially as a master's student and then as a PhD student. And uh, yeah, you were also a part of uh, the computational linguistic growth and also work as a teaching assistant for various computer science classes. So how was your overall academic experience at um, University of Toronto? It's been really a dream. When... It, it all all started when I was trying to school, choose a grad school, uh, and I had the first interview with my now supervisor, and he he talked about uh, the different projects that he could have me do, and all of them were related to lost language decipherment or the analysis of ancient languages, and that was something that I had wanted to do for years, but had no idea how to get into, and I didn't actually know you could do a master's on it, so I immediately accepted the offer. Uh, and was super excited to start. I started in, in May rather than waiting for September. Then uh, followed with a lot of research on uh, writing systems, uh, which I think is rather underappreciated, uh, but writing systems are super fascinating from the different sorts of characters that are used for writing language, the different, how you discover which sounds uh, you're going to match up with the different characters. If, if you've got a lost language and you understand uh, the somewhat meaning of it, you sort of know where it comes from and you're trying to determine which languages uh, that are related to it may have been uh, most affected by it to determine what, what sort of sounds you could match up with the characters, for example, in this ancient language, or how do you determine the syntax of the language? How do you uh, determine whether one particular character is a symbol for, say, a sound, uh, a group of sounds, an entire meaning of a word. Uh, it's really fascinating stuff. Mm, I see. And yeah, and we're actually going to talk a bit deeper about you know, that research. Uh, but before that, um, I want just want to quickly discuss like um, a an, an pretty interesting project that I found when, when doing research on your profile. So you work on this, this project called Match Story, which is a text-oriented visual prototype built to support the complexity of medical narratives. So can you, you know, describe this project in more detail? Yeah, so that's an, a really interesting project. It was, it was led by uh, Nicole Sultanum, who's a PhD candidate at the University of Toronto as well. And we did a, a visualization uh, class together, info, information visualization. Uh, and she's really amazing at InfoViz. Info I recommend you take a look at her work. Essentially, it's about how you make medical texts, clinical texts, easy to cross-reference from one to another when you're trying to understand a patient's history mm -hmm. and how visualization can help with that. I see. Is, is that a, like a big problem in medical system? 
yes, it can be quite a big problem because you've got all sorts of all sorts of files from different patients. They're not uh, necessarily sorted through time. You're trying to understand uh, what symptoms the person had at which points in time. But I think a doctor would be able to explain this much better than I could. <laughs> Great. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for sharing that. You you talked earlier about you know working on methods to decipher lost language, and then um, you know one of your paper is called vowel and consonant classification through spectral decomposition. You know, this work was later presented at one of the conference in uh, empirical methods in NLP. So would you mind going over details of, of this research? Yeah, of course. I love that paper. So essentially, we were trying to figure out how to distinguish vowels from consonants in an undeciphered system. So if you don't know what the sounds are associated to a character, and you, but you do know that you're dealing with an alphabetic writing system, then... Uh, what you could do is use this method to determine which ones are vowels and which ones are consonants with almost 100% accuracy. The almost 100% is because there are some characters that don't occur more than once or twice uh, or more than in one or two contacts, and then it's very difficult to determine if they're actually a vowel or a consonant. But essentially, yeah, with almost 100% accuracy, you could determine if a character is a vowel or a consonant. And if you're trying to determine if you're dealing with an alphabetic system or an abjad, which doesn't contain vowels, uh, then we provide another method for determining which one it is. So if you're trying to distinguish the, an alphabet from a syllabary, from um, a logographic writing system, which is, uh, can be more like ancient Egyptian, for example, where you've got entire uh, symbols representing entire words, you could really do so by counting the number of symbols. But then it gets tricky when you're trying to determine whether it's an alphabet or an abjad, because they've got approximately, say, 14 to 30 symbols for the most part. So it turns out that if you use our method for determining whether uh, what are vowels and consonants, assuming that they are an alphabet, and then you count the percentage of words that don't have vowels and the percentage of words that don't have consonants, you can get, if you have a weird proportion there, you could tell with a pretty much 100% accuracy that it's an abjad. And um, what languages was just being used as the a, as a data set in this research? Oh, uh, we... We tried this on, I think, o over 18 languages uh, from all over the world. So we tried this on Hawaiian, English, French, I think Finnish, Hebrew, Arabic, you name it. We tried to vary it as much as possible when it came to uh, the different sorts of sound combinations that you could make. I see. And did you notice any, you know, distinguished uh, characteristic of like certain, you know, um, languages that, that come from? different geographic regions? That's a fun thing. It works on all of them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, sounds great. Yeah. Your core PhD research focused on privacy preserving pattern recognition. And, you know, you, you wrote a short blog post called Why is Privacy Preserving NLP Importance? Mm -hmm. uh, arguing that research in privacy preserving NLP is likely to, uh, you know, revolutionize the way that companies and governments collect, store, process, and sell user data. So, you know, can you uh, unpack this article for the audience? Yeah, absolutely. So right now, the world is leading more and more towards having laws that are 
pro-privacy, pro-data protection. So you've got GDPR in Europe, you've got the CCPA in New York, uh, sorry, in California, you've got a new law in New York uh, that's taking effect, or if it hasn't already, you've got an equivalent to the GDPR that's taking effect this year in Brazil, and you've got one that took effect recently in South Africa. Nigeria is also thinking of having privacy regulation that's uh, pretty strong. So is India. Canada's working its way towards it. China's even considering a privacy legislation for businesses. So you've got a lot of laws that have, uh, that have set parameters for, towards what you can do with data. And a lot of the technology hasn't necessarily caught up to that for companies to do what they want to do. So research and privacy preserving NLP is specifically interesting and important because NLP or natural language contains some of the most sensitive data that we produce. And uh, I'm personally including speech processing in, uh, in that category as well. And you've got even more personal data in speech than you would in language because you could still, in, in speech, you can not only figure out who's speaking in a recording based on just a snippet of voice, but you could also find things out like, uh, what their socioeconomic background is, what, what kind of education they have. You can figure out uh, somewhat their gender, not speaking of gender identities, just, I guess, you can somewhat figure it out. You can then also, essentially, you have such a variety of information that you could capture from recordings that isn't present in text, but text itself also has a lot of information that you could capture, like uh, if somebody gives you a password, if somebody tells you about some mental health problem they're going through, this is all information that companies can use for the good uh, if they're doing the right, the right thing, right? So mm -hmm. essentially, privacy goes hand in hand with security. You can't have, have privacy without uh, security because you need to be able to secure the data that you're collecting. And without privacy, security becomes much harder because... Privacy ensures, for example, that you only the right individuals are seeing the data. You're only collecting as much as you need. You're keeping your, your users aware of where their information uh, or how their information is being used, in some cases where their information is. All enforces a huge sense of responsibility for the companies with regards to how they treat the data mm -hmm. and who they let see the data, making it much easier to keep track of it and to keep it secure to avoid data leaks. Yeah, those are definitely very um, serious concerns that you know a lot of leaders can need to pay attention to. Mm -hmm. And and I think you know you also put in the spot that uh, you know some of the research in privacy preserving NLP is still quite novel, still in in their infancy. And um, so as we talking about this topic, uh, last year you you wrote a paper called Privacy Preserving Character Language Modeling. This research um, proposed a method for calculating character backgrounds and background probabilities over sensitive data using homomorphic encryption. So how did this method address some of the issues in privacy preserving NLP that you know, we briefly discussed? Mm -hmm. So that, that was more of an experimental paper just to see the feasibility of using the particular method used there for character language modeling rather than something that would be used in practice. And but homomorphic encryption itself is going, is going to be a very interesting tool for ensuring privacy-preserving NLP happens uh, across the board. It's not a tool that you could use everywhere. So what I've noticed is that 
if somebody does not know about all the technologies that are available for privacy preserving, for integrating privacy into NLP or any sort other sort of uh, algorithm, they can assume that one technology solves all problems when it's really very problem dependent which one you choose. Mm-hmm. So in the case of homomorphic encryption, you would want to use it when you've got, for example, very, very sensitive data that you're sending up to the cloud to be processed. And then assuming you don't trust that cloud provider or the, the person processing your data, unless it's uh, encrypted using quantum-safe cryptography. And what quantum-safe cryptography means is essentially that there hasn't been a quantum algorithm that breaks it yet. Uh, not that it's impossible to break using quantum computers. It's essentially for when you have a client and a server where the client is sending sensitive information to the server, the information has to constantly be encrypted, and then the server replies with an encrypted result, and the client can then decrypt it without anybody else having seen that answer. It can also be used in conjunction with other methods. So uh, homomorphic encryption is often combined with secure multi-party computation to make it more efficient. And then in that case, you've got a lot of parties that are trying to get the same result without sharing the same input data. Now, last week you were talking about homomorphic encryption. You also wrote like you know a couple of blog posts on homomorphic encryption for beginners, I believe, and basically uh, that discuss some of the basics of the techniques, give an overview of some of the libraries out there, and discuss um, practical application of that. So, yeah, what do you hope to achieve with writing some of those introductory guide to homomorphic encryption? Mm-hmm. So, I wrote those because when I first started learning about homomorphic encryption, I had to gather bits and pieces here and there how to go about informing myself of the fundamentals of the technology and how to uh, start using it in a practical way. And it could have been much less time consuming if I had a resource like that one on hand. So I really wanted to simplify the process by putting what uh, the sources that I used to learn in a, a step-by-step manner of what you need to know first and then how you go about pretty easily deploying this. Mm, I see. Yeah, so, uh, and it seems like, you know, some of your subsequent research also focus a lot on on, on using homomorphic encryption. One of your paper is called uh, Efficient Evaluation of Activation Functions of Encrypted Data. And if I'm correct, then this paper shows how to represent the value of any function over a defined and barred interval without needing to decrypt any intermediate values before obtaining the function's output. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so would you mind, I guess, unpacking that, uh, the contribution in, in this paper? Yeah, absolutely. So in homomorphic encryption, you can't perform polynomial, uh, you can only perform polynomial uh, computations. So that means non-polynomial computations like ReLU functions, ReLU functions, TANH, sigmoid, those have to be approximated. Either that, or you have to have some sort of communication between the server and the client, which has the decryption key in order to calculate that function. But then you have to add a little bit more of a complicated protocol. You have to rely on communication, which might not be that reliable if, for example, the user's device is off or might put a lot of um, strain on the user's device itself or on their bandwidth, especially if they're using a cell phone, for example. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that's something that you want to avoid. So there has been some work on uh, trying to find efficient approximations for activation functions in the encrypted domain in order to be able to do deep learning. So far, there have been, for example, common activation functions that use a combination of Chebyshev polynomials, which are 
polynomials that are orthogonal to one another. And when combined, you could get an approximations of the sigmoid function. But that gives results that are above one and below zero. So if you're trying to predict a probability, uh, it's not going to work. And another option uh, that was proposed is to use the f of x equals x squared function as an activation function in t instead of ReLU. Mm -hmm. And that can work in certain situations, but it doesn't always converge. So essentially in that pa this paper, what we're proposing is if you have a bounded interval and you have done the appropriate numerical analysis to be able to do this, you are able to use our method to essentially do a very, very efficient lookup table for that bounded interval where you've pre-computed the values, you know what kind of inputs you're com are coming in approximately, and you're able to get that result without having any of that communication uh, between the client and the server and without having to worry about figuring out how to converge, how to make a network converge without, by trying different, uh, different functions that may or may not actually get the network to the accuracy that was originally there. Mm, I see. Yeah, that's very interesting, you know, because most of the common activation function for, for normal data, we, we pretty familiar with, but yeah, it seems like, as you mentioned, for, for encrypted data, that, that raises a whole other theoretical limitation of, of the current activation function, and it seems like this work is an attempt to bridge that gap and maybe introduce new mathematical terms to generate new functions, right? Right. Yeah, so another paper concerning homomorphic encryption that you work on, I think quite recently, this one is called Extracting Back Frequency Substroke Coefficients from Encrypted Signals. So this work is, is focused on um, speech communication. The paper claims that extracting spectral features from encrypted signals is one of the first steps towards achieving a secure end-to-end -end automatic speech recognition over encrypted data. Yeah, so, you know, can you uh, just elaborate on that? Mm, yeah. So there have been papers working on doing author recognition, sorry, not author recognition, uh, speaker recognition. I'm currently working on author recognition, so I get mixed up. So speaker recognition, uh, so trying to determine who is speaking in a recording, or also speaker authentication, so trying to determine whether the speaker is who they say they are. And for that, those works, most of the time, they have computed the MFCCs directly on the device and then encrypted the MFCCs and done computations on the cloud that has communication back and forth with uh, the user device in order to solve for certain functions that would otherwise not be possible, like a log. So in those cases, we, you could approximate, for example, uh, but it, takes a, it does take a little bit longer. So essentially, if we want to remove as much of the cost of computation from a user's device as possible, for example, we have to be able to encrypt the speech signal itself and then do all the processing in the cloud. And up until the paper where I, that we presented in, in InterSpeech, there hadn't been any work done, from what I know, on computing the BFCCs, which are like MFCCs, but bark filters instead of ML filters then be able to take that information and then use it in uh, different speech algorithms. So there's that point, but also if you want to store the data long-term, you're not going to necessarily have the user's device have to download the speech, uh, the piece of speech again, and then compute the MFCCs and then and send them to uh, your server most of the time. So there, there are a few reasons why you'd want to have all of the computations be possible directly on the server. 
And you know, as, as we're talking about like speech recognition on encrypted data, what, what were some of some of the examples of real world you know scenarios where we need to have encrypted data for for speech? And uh, what are some of the you know current research that that kind of you know along with with what you present here that that address some of the issues in this domain? So there's very little research in this domain. There is some privacy re- research going on in speech, but most of the time it's how do you mask a speaker, for example. Uh, as I had mentioned, right, the speech is one of the pieces of information that has the most sensitive information that we produce. So arguably, if you could only send encrypted data to, for example, your personal assistants that are responding to your voice, if you're sending data to a third party for automatic speech recognition, those could all use eventually something like homomorphic encryption in order to provide privacy-preserving processing. So there was, for example, a scandal recently where it was seen that Amazon Alexa engineers were listening to conversations that Alexa had picked up in order to debug their systems. Mm-hmm. And people were not very happy to find that out. But if if there were ways to ensure oneself that our conversations would not be listened to, that they would be securely stored and or securely processed, not only can that give users more peace of mind, I for one would uh, actually consider buying one of those personal assistants, whereas I definitely would not put an Alexa Echo or any of those into my home. But also it could provide a lot of protection against data leaks, right? That's true, yeah. There's, there's abundance of real-world scenarios, and, and you mentioned earlier that there's not a lot of research to address that, so this seems like a great opportunity for any researcher, young researchers who are interested in uh, getting into security, and, and especially in, in speech recognition, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you work on privacy-preserving for language modeling and also for, for speech recognition, as, as we just mentioned. And um, earlier this year, you, you put together like a very comprehensive guide on perfectly privacy-preserving AI. And then this article, you know, basically dives into the four pillars of perfectly privacy-preserving AI and also outlines some of the potential combinatorial solution to satisfy all those four pillars. So yeah, what are some of the key takeaways that readers can get out of reading this article? So what I really wanted to, to get across were the different parts of a machine learning pipeline that people had to be careful about with regards to privacy and how they all fit together. Once you understand how they all fit together, what kind of privacy risks you have, you can then make a more informed decision of which technologies to use in order to protect your user's data. Mm-hmm. That's essentially what I wanted to to put out there along with information about how these different technologies fit in together because a lot of the time we hear about them independently and it's not necessarily clear how you would make them play nice. Yeah, I see. And a couple of like, you know, the technologies and tools that you mentioned in this article, I think we talk a bit about homomorphic encryption and you really mentioned secure multi-party computation as well. But, um, you know, two, two others, tools that you also brought up in, in this piece is um, number one is federal learning and number two is um, differential privacy. And these are also two terms that I, I heard pretty frequently, but don't really quite get an understanding of it. So uh, can you like, you know, elaborate or maybe elucidate, you know, how, how these two uh, concept different from uh, the one that we already discussed? Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So federated learning itself is about bringing computation to the device where the data is collected. 
And that in itself does not necessarily ensure privacy. So you do need to combine it with differential privacy, for example, which allows you to make generalizations about data rather than get very specific information. So one of the original ways in which differential privacy was used or, uh, or proposed to be used was to add noise to the result of a query to a database. So you can make uh, generalizations like it is possible for populations who that populations who smoke also uh, have cancer, but you can't get very specific information about an individual with a rare disease in that data set, for example. So you'll get, if you ask how many people in this data set have X rare disease and also smoke and have cancer, if you get an, an exact, uh, exact number, you might be able to identify who is in that data set. But uh, with differential privacy, you get a mathematical guarantee of privacy where it promises that if you only make a certain number of queries to the data set, then you're able to preserve the identity of the people in that data set. So if you get, if you have one of these people in the data set that you, that you get uh, as a result of a query, you add a bit of noise to that. You don't know if the answer was one, two, three, you have no idea. So mm-hmm. you can still, you can't have that specific information about that individual, but you could still get that general sense about the population because a little bit of noise won't affect whether or not people who smoke have cancer or not in a general whole large amounts of people. That concept of differential privacy was transferred onto privacy-preserving machine learning by adding differentially private noise onto the training process. So when you're training uh, and the gradients are shifting, you're basically capping the limit of the amount that a gradient can change an input. So the idea there is that the gradients will be able to memorize general information, but not very specific information about a data set. Mm. So when you combine that with federated learning, you get generalizable learning. And then on top of that, you can add secure multi-party computation where the resulting weights of the model, so the, the change in weights, can be combined with the weights of other models as well, so that you have a set number of inputs that you need in order to have an output that makes any sense. And then that output uh, can be sent to the cloud to update the model, and it all had been done in a privacy-preserving way. So the model in the cloud can then be propagated down to the devices again to, so, so that everybody could take advantage of the learning. You also provided a bunch of like, links and tools on, on that guy, you know, with implementation of these, you know, differential privacies in like PyTorch and, and TensorFlow and CoreML, et cetera. You know, from a practitioner part of view, let's say I'm trying to build a model, right? And then, you know, try to deploy it. How soon should I consider adding some of these privacy methods into my data and my model? Like what, what step of the, the, the model workflow should I think about federal learning or differential privacies? You know, I'm just curious, you know, as someone, as a practitioner, for example, you know, how much weight should I should I put it on to utilizing some of these methods that you mentioned? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it should be done at design stage. Otherwise, it's very, very difficult to integrate these uh, post hoc. Essentially, you, you have to create your entire architecture around what it is that you want to preserve the privacy of and your, the understanding of what kind of sensitive information you have and what level of sensitivity it is. Yeah, I, I think like 
in, also in the article, you kind of separate between data privacy and then motor privacy. So which one is, is harder to, I guess, you know, to address and which one is, you know, is, is more reasonable to figure out? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I guess it really depends on where the model is being deployed and also how difficult it is to process the data in the setting that you have uh, in a privacy preserving way. So model privacy, I find has less research that's been that's gone into it than user input and output privacy. Mm -hmm. I've heard that there's been some work on preventing the reverse engineering of uh, models from the output by adding a bit of differentially private noise to the output. And in some cases that can work out okay. But one major problem with model privacy is also that if you're doing federated learning, for example, you've got to find a way to protect your model from being stolen. Uh, and that can be very tricky. And I haven't found a publicly available solution for that. We're working on one, but it's not something that I've seen widely, widely discussed, aside from making sure your code is compiled Essentially, there are some tricks you can use, but there's nothing out there that really protects your model from... There's no black box work that you could just spew, put your model in and then out comes this absolutely safe model. Mm, I see. And as we're talking about motor privacy, and yours, is there any relationship between, you know, uh, you, you're talking about like motor being stolen. Is there any relationship between that and, you know, uh, adversary attacks, which is another, I think, quite popular research topics these days? Mm, that's an interesting question. I guess if you have access to the model itself, you might be able to have an idea of what kind of adversarial attacks would work better. But uh, as long as you have access to the output, you have plenty of leeway to play around with uh, what kind of inputs you send in and see what kind of outputs result from it to be able to determine what kind of attacks might work. They don't totally go hand in hand. Yeah, you could still yeah, you could still definitely attack a model even though you're being privacy preserving. Yeah, thanks thanks for sharing your, your knowledge on, on on this regard. So since May of 2017, you you've been the co-founder and CEO of Private AI, which is a startup that develops privacy preserving ML and NLP tools. Out of curiosity, you know, what are the differences and similarities between being an academic researcher and being a startup founder? So in academic research, you can afford to work on things that are very impractical, but will lead to future knowledge of it becoming hopefully practical one day. You can focus on much more theoretical work about, for example, the, the lost language decipherment uh, stuff I was talking about that would not fly in, <laughs> in a, a sales setting. But it's also very interesting to have the difference to see the difference so vividly because both are addressing both the commercial side of things and the academic side of things are addressing different problems that are both pretty important to address right so they're solving important problems but they're very different and ultimately the academic side of things will uh, sometimes provide hammers that will fit some nails in uh, the commercial side of things but that's not necessarily always the case but that's it's amazing that there's an opportunity to do that somewhere uh, where you don't just have to find solutions to problems that are actively out there and you can work on work that might be the foundation of something amazing. So in the commercial side of things, it's 
I guess the, the biggest thing, the hardest thing that was to wrap my mind around was that if you have a hammer, the right way to go about out, uh, looking what problem, uh, what to do commercially is not to go find a, a nail that fits a ham your hammer. It's really to go find the problems that are out there, the nails that need to be hit, and then building tools around those with the, the understanding that you gain from the academic realm, but without just pulling a tool out of that tool set. So it has to be handcrafted specifically to the market needs. Yeah, and it sounds like, you know, commercially speaking, you know, it's, it's more problem-driven and then in academia, it's more solution-driven. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so you talk about the differences. What, what about like the similarities? Is there any similarities between this kind of setting? Even in like in, in a meta level, I suppose. I mean, in both cases, you're still trying to convince people that your work is worth looking at. <laughs> There's, there, I guess that's the biggest similarity that I can find. Uh, there's still the political aspect uh, to both that mm-hmm. can be pretty important. Talking about private AI, right? And then I, I was just taking a look at the website. Basically, I, I saw a video about Galatia anonymization suite, which basically a software that anonymizes data at the source and then encrypt them using quantum safe cryptography. From talking with your, with your clients, right? What, what have, you, have you noticed to be the significant challenges of incorporating privacy solution into uh, enterprise software. Hmm. Yeah, so it's super interesting. The reason why we start we built this toolkit is because we've noticed there's a, this huge gap in the market where there were no privacy preserving tools out there for just developers who didn't have a machine learning, homomorphic encryption, secure multi-party computation as a background. And those are pretty rare skill sets, all things considered, and pretty hard to acquire a lot of the time. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to build something that was as generalizable as possible and as easy to integrate as possible in order to address that need. And the reason this, that making it lightweight, making it fast, and making it easy to understand is important is because you want to be able to go into these large code bases and retrofit them in an easy way in a privacy preserving way. Or you want to be able to, for it to not take uh, six months to train a new model, figure out how to properly train a new model, for example, in order to do what you need to do. You want to be able to, to have people understand what your technology does, which when trying to commercialize homomorphic encryption on its own, turns out to be very hard to do. So yeah, that's, that's essentially, essentially what, we're, what we're working towards. Is there any particular, you know, industry domain that, uh, you know, private AI target for, for clients? So far, the, the use cases that we've, uh, we've come across with clients are either when you have a, some have had data sets that they want uh, different teams to use, like machine learning teams, data science teams, but from another part of the organization, but they haven't been able to transfer that data to them because they've worried about the uh, sensitive nature of the data within it. So we've been able to help with that as well as as a filter to data to data set queries so that essentially you're preventing the amount of sensitive data that's being sent around the organization so you don't lose track of who has whose information, which is super important for things like the GDPR, where you need to be able to keep track of what kind of, where everybody's personal information is. You need to be able to, to document all the processes that use it. You also need to be able to answer to access to information requests and write to be forgotten requests. So that could become very complicated 
when you have data being used by multiple teams that has sensitive information in it. Whereas, and part of, part of the GDPR lets you use anonymized data without worrying about it being about whether or not you're, you're using somebody's information because it's just not there anymore. Another uh, interesting use case that we've seen for our tech has been for integrating into, directly into apps uh, or directly into browser extensions when you're trying to get the core of the information. You're trying to determine sentiment. You're trying to determine that there's violence going on in a video. You're trying to see what the topic is that somebody is talking about. There are a lot of predictions that can be made on data that don't require the sensitive nature of the information. And in fact, a lot of people just don't want the sensitive information in the first place because that puts them at risk of a data leak. Yeah, that's, that's what we're, we're working on. It sounds like um, data governance as a concept has been uh, you know, kind of popping up quite often recently. Yeah, data Even governance and data loss prevention. Yeah, data loss prevention, and especially when you mentioned on, on device, right? So, you know, on hardware or even mobile device, it's a little bit different because performance learning on uh, on edge is so a little bit different compared to a traditional way we approach it on, on the server. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, uh, you want to get rid of the data as quickly as possible uh, in some cases. You know, you, you are a male researcher and then you, uh, you know, start your own startup. You know, this is like, I'm just curious from, from your personal part of view, but what could be your advice for, let's say someone who's a, who's a, you know, a young researcher who wants to start, start your own startup? Like what would be your advice for people who want to kind of like being a father and bring their academic research background and, and commercialize that in, in, in the industry? The most important thing is to talk to a lot of people. So open up an Excel spreadsheet, have some hypotheses that you want to test, and then just go out and talk to people and fill up the Excel spreadsheet with what they've told you. Talk to 50, 60, 70 people, and you're going to get an idea from those conversations, whether or not your hypotheses are sensible, Mm -hmm. uh, whether they do actually serve a need. And then you can very quickly, if you can very quickly build a prototype to actually make sure that what people are saying is consistent with what they what they will do. That's the best way to go about it. So instead of full on building a pro, just going out there building product for two years and then launching it and then having it flop, you could build prototype minimal viable products that you can iterate over very quickly and see whether if Bob says he's going that would be amazing and he's going to use it every day, is he actually going to use it every day? Right. Mm-hmm. Maybe he just thinks it would be great, but doesn't actually, won't actually do so. Yeah, thanks a lot for emphasizing on the um, practical tactics of, of, you know, basically what you're saying is, you know, improving customer-facing function, a lot of sales and, and, and you know, try to figure out the customer needs, which is mm-hmm. uh, quite a uh, contrast to what is being teach in, in um, academia, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really is. So in addition to working on, on private AI, you also has been a postgrad affiliate at Vector Institute, which works with institution, industry, startups, incubators, and accelerators to advance AI research and drives its application adoption and commercialization across Canada. And um, how would you describe the AI community in Canada and what roles does uh, Vector Institute play on that? The AI community here is incredibly strong. We're really lucky to have this much of a network. I guess one of the Big differences between being at the University of Toronto, being at the Vector Institute, is that if 
there are any questions that you have, you know exactly who to ask and their answer will be very to the point, right? That's something that you can't necessarily get with online courses, unfortunately, yet. Mm -hmm. So the Vector Institute in Toronto, uh, Mila in Montreal and Ami in Alberta, they were funded by the federal government in, with the purpose of giving, keeping our AI talent in Canada, right? So if you are somebody who has a very strong machine learning background and want to find a job, you don't want to just go to a city with one job. You want to know that there are more opportunities in that city for you as well. Having these sorts of institutes with prestige and career advancement opportunities really helps with attracting talent to Canada. In terms of collaboration, do you have a chance to collaborate with, you know, a sort of researchers from, from this different institution? Yeah, okay. So with the Vector Institute, we've been working on some collaborations on privacy-preserving machine learning. And at U of T, the work with my advisor, Gerald Penn, and has mainly been on combining homomorphic encryption with natural language processing, speech processing, and uh, numerical analysis as well. And we're also collaborating with an, another PhD student called Prishna Priya, who we're working on really understanding what it means to have author profiling tools, for example, be 90% accurate. What does that mean in practice? Yeah, thanks a lot for sharing that uh, that example. I read a lot of you know, research papers, and there's a bunch of them coming from Vector Institute. So definitely, there's a big name in in the research community, right? Related to you know what we just discussed, reflecting on your research career thus far, what could be your advice for individuals who want to make a dent in the AI research community? I'm personally a huge fan of combining topics, combining, for example, privacy with NLP or I've seen a lot of success when people combine background in healthcare biology with machine learning and, and computer science. So I think that machine learning on its own is great for doing very deep theoretical research on the mathematical models, the numerical analysis required in order to get better, better results, uh, not only in terms of accuracy, but in terms of speed and compression as well. But I've noticed that when you do have that extra skill, where you go deep in two areas, you get explosive combinations that can lead to really incredible work. Not to say that work in theoretical machine learning isn't incredible, it is, but it can be much harder to bake, break through if you're a new researcher when you're going into a field that's already so well explored. I absolutely love that advice. Yeah, that, that's very practical. And, you know, finally, like, You've been a, a reviewer, a committee member, and organizer at various academic conferences and workshops like AAAI, um, WSDM, and EMNLP. What are some of the trends in the research community that you are most excited about in uh, upcoming years? So I'm very excited that privacy is actually taking off. I think it's such an important topic, and it's getting more and more attention, partially because of legislation, partially because of all the data leaks that have occurred recently. The news is focusing more on it. And I think that's making uh, quite a bit of a rumble in multiple fields, which is super exciting. I'm also really curious to see now that we've gotten all of these breakthroughs in, in NLP, like GT GPT-3, like how to uh, efficiently run models on the edge. I'm really curious about what that's going to look like 
for like once again going back into privacy preserving NLP, but also what what it's going to look like for in terms of language understanding, how that's going to increase our ability to integrate to to have realistic conversations with computers, how that's going to improve dialogue systems, mm. and ultimately there's this amazing basis of research that has been that allows us to do work that we have not been able to get to the levels of accuracy that recently that have recently occurred and exploded. Yeah, so essentially it's a, it's a really exciting time to be an NLP researcher and I'm really looking forward to seeing how these advances in written natural language transfer to spoken language processing as well. Mm, absolutely, yeah. Obviously, like you know, been a lot of you know public release and demos of GPT three recently, and and you know, I think back to your point, you mentioned that combination of you know NLP and privacy, which, which is very, 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 very great because uh, it it touched different type of thing, even into like uh, human computer interaction (SCI), which is a, a whole other field that also probably should get more in, intention as as uh, machine learning has become much more integrated into our daily products and 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 behavior. You know, stepping out the research realm and going to the the real world application. So yeah, thanks a lot for sharing your take on that. And hopefully a lot of people can pay more stuff to even put more attention on privacy in the upcoming years or so. Uh, Patricia, at this point of our conversation, I want to move on into the final closing segment in which I'm going to ask you uh, three rapid fire questions and then you can, you know, give your, your answers to the listeners. Okay. Okay. Number one, name three people in the machine learning universe whose work you really admire. I'm going to say Reza Shokri, Perina Sabani, Doina Prekup. Number two, uh, name one book that you would recommend for people to develop a better analytical mindset. I couldn't find an answer to that question because I, I think it, it comes with a lot of mathematical training or a lot of reading of different articles and not necessarily comes in the form of a book. Got it. And then lastly, Imagine that you send out a tweet to all the aspiring machine learning researchers on Twitter. What could you tweet about? Learn machine learning, but not just machine learning. I combine it with something. Learn that other something deeply. Well, Patricia, thanks a lot for you know talking with me today. I really enjoy hearing about your background, starting with, with the liberal arts education as well as logistics, how you get into computer science, some of your interesting research that intersect NLP and, and, and privacy as well as a bunch of helpful resources, papers, and articles related to privacy-preserving AI. And, you know, I, I, I hope, you know, to see a bunch of more interesting products coming out of private AI and some job work from Back to Institute. And then I will put all the links to the show notes so people can have a chance to uh, learn more about this, you know, up-and-coming field and, and get in touch if they have any questions. Thank you so much, Jim. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much for the invitation. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.